Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Common Room Talk. My name's Tony, and I'm your host. And wow, we've made it to the third episode. This is really exciting for me. Uh, the past week has just been really cool just watching where people are downloading and listening from. And it, to me, it's just really cool that people want to, to listen to, to me talk about Harry Potter. And some of the feedback that I've gotten is really, really interesting to me is quite a few people have actually said that my voice is soothing to listen to and to me it's funny because I can't stand my voice I think I have a very nasally gross sounding voice and so it's really cool to actually hear people say that it's it's soothing when they listen to this and then uh, a few people have also said that some of the parts of the the first two episodes had a little bit of ADHD to it in which I did warn you I did say that I have ADHD in the first episode it is something that I'm trying to control. And again, the point of all of this is for me to ultimately have an avenue to talk about Harry Potter and also get better at public speaking. And so hopefully over the course of the podcast, it is something that I will get better at at being able to not just talk about one certain thought, but be able to continue it without going on five different tangents. And so, yeah, but really exciting. And again, thank you for the feedback. I, I want to hear all the feedback that I can. If you guys like, we have our email set up. Email me at commonroomtalk at gmail.com. Give me your feedback. Let me know what you think. I, I would love to hear your thoughts. If you have something that you want to correct me on, please, I love being corrected. Talk to me about what I'm talking to you guys about. Talk back to me. I want to hear it. Tell me what your guys' thoughts are on, on some of the things that we've talked about in the first few chapters. We're going to be diving into to chapter two today. And so, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I also want to touch on a few other subjects before we get into that. Um, and so, yeah, let's go ahead and get into it. The the first thing that I actually want to talk about is something that I said in both the first and second episode, which is about an audiobook that I have been listening to. Um, I've finished a few times now called Harry Potter, A Journey Through a History of Magic. And I stated in the first two episodes that it was only an audiobook. And I don't know why I thought I heard that it was only an audiobook, um, but it's not. I actually have a copy here that my wife got me for Christmas, and I had no idea. And it's really funny because when I got the book, she looked at me and said, you're never going to look at that. You're just going to put it on your shelf, and you're never going to open it. Well, joke's on her. I have been pouring through it relentlessly over the past week now, and I am happy to, to share that you can go to stores and get it. I did find it at Walmart when I wanted to just double check, and then that's when I remembered that I do have it at home, and I started looking through it. And I will say the audiobook is also really cool because there are things in the audiobook that are not in this book itself. Uh, this book is really good. I really, really enjoy it. But there is some extra stuff in the audiobook. It's narrated by Natalie Dormer, and you get to hear from different different curators of different museums from the U.S. and the U.K. You get to hear from Jim Kay and Stephen Fry, and it's just it's really interesting to to hear their insights into how they brought the Wizarding World to life and how these curators at these museums get to live it every day as they show people a lot of these artifacts and and just histories and and things that inspired jk rowling to write her story and so yeah if you don't 
have this book, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend getting on Audible or however you like to listen to audiobooks and listen to this book. And you know, maybe maybe in Audible they said that it was an Audible exclusive, and that might be why I thought that it was only an audiobook. But yeah, I cannot recommend it enough. It is an amazing book. I really hope that over the course of this podcast, I'll also learn how to segue into other segments a little more smoothly than I am because I just want to be like, all right, we're going on to the next thing. And so, yeah, with that, we're going on to the next thing. The next thing that I wanted to talk about is just not so much a history of witchcraft, but just a little bit of history that has led to some misconceptions about Harry Potter and the witchcraft that we have in Harry Potter specifically. Because I have been asked before, how is it that you as a Christian can sit there and like Harry Potter? Isn't it demonic? Isn't there magic and spells and sorcery in it? And the answer is, it's not anything like that. And it's based on this misconception as to what demonic witchcraft is. And I don't want to go into talking to any of that. That's really dark stuff. And that's not what we're here for. And I don't want to talk about that. But one of the things that I want to talk about, which is something that has happened both here in the US and over in Europe, and that is uh, witch trials that took place in our past and in Europe's past. And about two or 300 years before the Salem witch trials over in Europe, there were witch trials that happened that were more, I don't want to say more, they were even more gruesome and terrifying than what we had in Salem. And I'm sure a lot of people are very familiar with the Salem witch trials, the the, the crazy witch hunts that people were just basically accusing anyone and everyone that either like wronged them, they disliked them or blackmailing them for any reason, just calling them out as a witch. And a lot of times people were hung and killed. And this happened in the thousands, about two or 300 years before the Salem Witch Trials over in Europe. And there were some books that were published that led to a lot of people just falsely accusing people of witchcraft. And again, I'm not going to get into it. One of the books is called Hammer of the Gods. That one was pretty brutal in the depiction of what witches did and, and why people should punish them for what they did. And it is a blemish on history because a lot of innocent people died. And the reason I say innocent people is because we know that there were situations in which, so like the word witchcraft itself is just so encompassing. And when we think about then the things that were people were killed for that fell under the, the word or title of witchcraft were things like people who ran an apothecary and they, they were herbalists and they actually were like the founders of, of what we have as modern medicine today. And it's crazy to think about that people were killed for things that are applauded for today. We wouldn't have some of the medicines that we have today by the grace of God. We have these medicines today that were started then, the experiments started then. And unfortunately, a lot of people were killed for practicing with these herbs. And while some of it, and maybe a, a majority of people, I don't know. I, I wasn't there. None of us were there. We only have kind of like bias record keeping. There were most likely people who were doing just scary demonic things. And that's not something that I would ever, ever endorse. I would never encourage anyone to ever look at anything like that. It is very terrifying stuff. But what I'm getting at is this, is 
this book, Hammer of the Gods, came out and it depicted a bunch of different things about people uh, that would make it seem as if they were practicing witchcraft, which the penalty for witchcraft then was death. But another book came out not too long after by a German man, and the book itself, I believe the title is Of Witches and Female Fortune Tellers. And this book, while still condemning witchcraft, tried to come up with better representations and depictions of what actual demonic witchcraft was. And in doing so, the book was also filled with descriptions of what actually wasn't witchcraft, such as like people studying herbs in a way that was medicinal. And unfortunately, the wood carving stamp pictures that were in this, basically people would carve wood pictures paint them and then press them down as a stamp on a piece of paper and that's how you would get the images in these books some of them depicted women standing around cauldrons or women with brooms and women with warts and i keep saying women because it was primarily women that were usually hung for for these things or burned for these things and in these pictures it is primarily women being depicted and unfortunately even though witches and I would say even wizards then people who were studying witchcraft might not have been doing those things specifically with cauldrons because cauldrons were not really that uncommon they were depicted with them in the way that they used broomsticks and it wasn't anything that was like bad it wasn't like malicious but because people were not that literate at those times they understood that the book was a depiction of about a depiction of witchcraft it was a book telling them how to recognize witches and witchcraft and they didn't really understand or they couldn't really read what was going on because of how illiterate the common person was however they had these pictures that they could look at and it started to unfortunately rebound the the, the wrong way that the author wanted it to go and so people started just basically anytime they saw somebody with like cauldrons or broomsticks or anything like that the misconceptions start there and i'm not saying that it wasn't ever just like non-demonic witchcraft practicing that was happening with that what i'm getting at is this is that there are a lot of misconceptions about what witchcraft was that led to a lot of innocent people being killed. It led to a lot of fear-mongering, and ultimately, all the way up until today, leads us to a, a misconception of what Harry Potter itself is. Yes, Harry Potter has cauldrons, it has broomsticks, it has magics, and magics? It has magic, and it has wand use, and it has... All of these things in a made-up world. And I can't stress that enough. Made up. It is fiction. It is fake. But inside of that, there's nothing demonic. You don't see demons being summoned. You don't see blood magic, except for in very dark cases. And I, I think off the top of my head, the only one I can think of is in the very last book in which you had to which Dumbledore had to cut open his hand and put blood on rock as a tribute of payment to get in to where they needed to go. It wasn't summoning anybody. It wasn't summoning demons. It wasn't like actual blood magic, but it was a sacrifice to weaken yourself in order to gain entry. But there isn't evil in the sense of you have to barter with the devil or demons in order to do this magic. It is simply people that were born with an extra ability. And Ultimately, the thing that it comes down to is this, is 
if you're going to say that something like Harry Potter is evil, particularly as like a Christian, which I, again, I am a Christian, you then also have to say the same thing for like Lord of the Rings. J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian and, and he wrote a lot of spiritual undertones in the Lord of the Rings. And C.S. Lewis, also a huge Christian, writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Both of these stories have magic in them. They both have good and evil. But at the end of the day, they're all fiction. And that's what it comes down to is understanding that like this is a story. It is meant to entertain and inspire. It doesn't instruct you to do evil things. It doesn't tell you how to go out and try and summon the devil or summon demons. or. And I know that kind of talk is scary. And that's why I want to talk about this because Harry Potter isn't evil. I have never once opened this book and thought, man... I want to go do these things. Have I dreamed about it being cool to be able to make things levitate by using a wand? Absolutely. Like what kid hasn't thought about having extra powers? What kid hasn't like watched the X-Men or watched Marvel movies and think, man, it would be so cool to do that. But those things aren't evil. They're not demonic. And it's at the end of the day, and this is what I'm going to finish with, with, with this part is if you're a parent you know ultimately what is best for your kid. If you want your kid to watch something or be exposed to something, that's your duty. Do your due diligence and make sure that it's okay for them. And if you don't think it's okay, then that's fine. But just don't call it evil because you may have heard somebody else call it evil. Don't think that it's evil just because of past common misconceptions. Yes, there are evil things out in the world. It's in the Bible. We see demonic witchcraft in the Bible. It is very real, it is very scary, and not something to mess around with. But it's not Harry Potter. It's innocent, and it's fake. It's a story meant to entertain and inspire. And this isn't like me trying to attack anybody or any group. This I have heard it from plenty of people how they just ask how I'm a Christian and say this. And I'm not saying it's Christians who are saying this. I'm saying it's the world in general that has had these misconceptions. So please don't think that I'm like trying to attack anyone or put anyone down because I'm not. I'm just encouraging you to, to study for yourself and, and really dig in and see if this is okay for you and for your family. And it's not anybody's business if you think that it's not or anything. Just don't let it be based off of a misconception. And so, yeah, the next thing that I wanted to talk about was John Williams, the composer who does the, the movie music. And Harry Potter has some of the most iconic music ever. You hear it and you know it instantly. And something that I really enjoy about John Williams, which if you've never listened to him, I encourage you, please go listen to it. Like find his music and listen. His music is just epic and entertaining and inspiring. And like in all honesty, like whenever I hear his music, it makes me want to go on an adventure. And I was really surprised that as I... I listen to a lot of instrumental music, especially when I read. And so film scores come up a lot. And years, of course, like a few years ago that I started listening to music like this. And I realized that as I was listening to different film scores, there were a lot of similarities in some of the songs that I listened to. And I was listening to the Indiana Jones theme song. And I realized, man, this sounds a lot like Star Wars. And then I was listening to Star Wars, and I was like, man, this sounds a lot, almost like Harry Potter. There, there are things that are similar in, in like portions of the music itself. And some of the stuff that, that John Williams has done that he is really famous for, like obviously Star Wars, Indiana Jones, but Home Alone, 
Saving Private Ryan, Catch Me If You Can, The Patriot, and the Harry Potter movies. But also, and which is one of my favorite, Hook. It has one of the best film scores ever, and I absolutely love it. And I wanted to bring that up, like not just to make it random, but I was listening to the music this week, and I was like, I really want to make sure that I talk about John Williams. He is brilliant. It is great music. Go listen to it if you haven't. Honestly, the next time you sit down and maybe read a Harry Potter book or just reading in general, listen to some of his music. If you're if you're reading a Harry Potter book, it is amazing to have the Harry Potter theme music in the background because it, it just really helps you kind of just disappear into that world. And so, yeah, that will take us into chapter two. And something I really want to share with you guys because it's really cool. The end of the first chapter where we left Harry was him being left on the porch Dumbledore, Professor McGonagall, and Hagrid leaving is the middle of the night, and Petunia wakes up in the morning finding Harry and screaming. But I want to share something with you because that's almost not how it happened. And so I want to read something to you that is just, it's so cool. And I don't think I'm going to read all of it. I'll read some of it, kind of explain what's going on, and then I'll read more of it. But it starts off like this. Fudge wondered, of course, if he was going mad. He seriously considered the possibility that the giant had been a hallucination, but the brandy glass that the giant had drunk from was real enough, left standing on his desk. Fudge wouldn't let his secretary remove the glass the next day. It reassured him he wasn't a lunatic to do what he knew he had to do. He telephoned all the journalists he knew and all the television stations, chose his favorite tie, and gave a press conference. He told the world there was a madman about... A strange little man going about, a little man with red eyes. He told the public to be very careful not to tell this little man where anyone lived. Once he had given out this strange message, he said, any questions? But the room was completely silent. Clearly, they all thought that he was off his rocker. Fudge went back to his office and sat staring at the giant's empty brandy glass. So what's going on here is Fudge is actually the muggle minister of magic. And he spoke to a giant who told him about a little man with red eyes and that he's looking for people and that he was to warn the communities to not let anyone tell this man anything. Then it continues. The very last person he wanted to see was Vernon Dursley. Dursley would be delighted. Dursley would be happy counting the days until he was made minister now that Fudge was clearly nuttier than a bag of salted peanuts. Then Fudge and Vernon have a back and forth about how they have both been visited by these strange people. Then a few paragraphs down. Whether or not nearly everyone thought Fudge had gone very strange, the fact was that he seemed to have stopped the odd accidents. Three whole weeks passed and still the empty brandy glass stood on Fudge's desk to give him courage, and not one bus flew, the houses of Britain stayed where they were, the train stopped going swimming, Fudge, who hadn't even told Mrs. Fudge about the giant with the pink umbrella, waited and prayed and slept with his fingers crossed. Surely this Dumbledore would send a message if they had managed to get rid of the red-eyed dwarf. Or did this horrible silence mean that the dwarf had in fact got everyone he wanted, that he was even now planning to appear in Fudge's office and vanish him for trying to help the other side, whoever they were. And so we see Fudge, still the muggle minister of magic, he brought up 
Hagrid again, the giant with the pink umbrella. He brought up Dumbledore, and he brought up this red-eyed dwarf. This, uh, I'm assuming that this might be an early version, maybe, of Voldemort. Then it continues. Later that evening, when everyone else had gone home, Dursley sneaked up to Fudge's office, carrying a crib, which he laid on Fudge's desk. The child was asleep. Fudge peered nervously into the crib. The boy had a cut on his forehead. It was a very strangely shaped cut. It looked like a bolt of lightning. Going to leave a scar, I expect, said Fudge. Never mind the ruddy scar. What are we going to do with him, said Dursley. Do with him? Why, you'll have to take him home, of course, said Fudge in surprise. He's your nephew. His parents have been vanished. What else can we do? I thought you didn't want anyone to know you had relatives involved in all of these odd doings. Take him home, said Dursley in horror. My son Didsbury is just this age. I don't want him coming in contact with one of these. And so, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. It's interesting because it's a totally different beginning to this story. And I can't imagine how things would have been just different throughout the whole story. But there are some things that I I wanted to kind of draw your attention to. And that is that this interaction is actually very similar to what we see later on in the series. In Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, the opening chapter called The Other Minister, we see Fudge come in and interact with the Muggle Minister. And you see kind of like similar reactions from the muggle minister then thinking that he's crazy and all of these things and it's it's really cool to see how even though this was how the first story was maybe at one time going to be started it wasn't completely scrapped the idea was changed and adapted and still used later on in the story and as it is now actually getting ready to start storming i'm going to take a break from recording and be right back and i'm back and thanks to the magic no pun intended of editing it was instant for you which was 20 minutes for me and so yeah that early draft of how harry potter could have started it was really interesting to me and that's one of the things that in the book harry potter a journey through a history of magic again i cannot recommend it enough it is filled with so many cool things like this. So now, chapter two, The Vanishing Glass. We left Harry on the doorstep, and now ten years have passed, and we see that nothing in the house has really changed except for the photos. They are no longer of baby Dudley, but ten years older Dudley. There are no photos of Harry. In fact, it said that you wouldn't even have known that there was another boy living in the house. And I didn't write this down, but I wanted to draw this to your mind. I wanted to point something out that I just thought about, which is it's almost exactly how Dumbledore's sister, Ariana, was treated. Not saying that it was right or wrong, but we know, according to Auntie Muriel in The Deathly Hallows, that according to her, no one would have even known that Ariana Dumbledore was real unless somebody hadn't actually seen her or actually seen the funeral. And it's just kind of cool to think about the last book, that similarity with this in the first book. And so this chapter opens up with that. It's Dudley's birthday. Harry is sleeping in the cupboard. His aunt wakes him up by knocking on the door He had been having a dream about a flying motorbike, and he had a funny feeling that he had had that same dream before. 
we see a little bit about Dudley and Harry and that Dudley honestly was a bully. His favorite thing to do really was to beat up on Harry. It says that Harry was his favorite punching bag, but he often couldn't catch him because even though he didn't look it, Harry was very fast. We kind of get this description of Dudley being a very large boy in the obese sense and that Harry was very skinny. We actually get our first description of Harry. It says he he looked even smaller and skinnier than he really was because he had to wear all of Dudley's old clothes, but Harry had a thin face, knobbly knees, black hair, bright green eyes. He wore round glasses held together with a lot of tape because of all the times that Dudley had punched him on the nose. The only thing, and I think this is really interesting, the only thing that Harry liked about his own appearance was a very thin scar on his forehead, which was shaped like a bolt of lightning. Obviously, I think this is interesting because of the role of what this scar does and ultimately what it ends up meaning to Harry and why he has it. And as of right now, it says that it's the only thing about his appearance that he actually likes. And we get to see this transition through the story as he learns about his parents and and how he looks like his dad but has his mom's eyes that he really starts to change the, the things that he likes about himself. But as for now, the only thing that he likes is his scar. And when he asked about his scar, Petunia lies. We know it's a lie because of the conversation between Dumbledore and McGonagall, but she tells Harry that it was the result of the car crash that killed his parents. Harry is then told not to ask questions as it says that if you want a quiet life with the Dursleys, don't ask questions. Then on the next page, we get this beautiful artwork by Jim Kay. And again, as I'm going through these books, I'm going through the illustrated versions. And so if you don't have them, I also highly recommend them. They are absolutely gorgeous. The way that the, the pictures flow into the, the pages where you get the words and it just it ties everything together so well. And this picture is a very dark, depressing cupboard with Harry sitting on it looks like a pile of blankets there's spiders and spider webs in it but behind Harry which is really cool there is a little toy owl kind of like this little easter egg of what's to come and then there's like it looks like an oil tin that has a lightning bolt shape on it as well and there's just a lot of little things just tied in here and there but it's a very dark sad picture you see harry sitting there he's wearing baggy clothes he has his glasses on and they're they're broken in the middle and they have the tape holding them together then we see Harry is here frying eggs in the kitchen when Dudley arrives and we get a really good description of what Dudley looks like and it says that he looked a lot like Uncle Vernon. He had a large pink face, not much neck, small watery blue eyes and thick blonde hair that lay smoothly on his thick fat head. And Petunia often said that Dudley looked like a baby angel. Harry often said that Dudley looked like a pig in a wig. Then we get one of the best scenes in the movie that happens here in the book, and it's a little bit different, but it's the the present scene where Dudley is looking at all of his presents, trying to count them, and says 36, looking up at his mother and father. That's two less than last year. Or in the movie, we get the, where Dudley's like, how many are there? Vernon says, 36, counted him myself. And Dudley goes into his temper tantrum, 36, 36. Well, last year I had 37. And you just, you really see the molly coddling that happens from his parents and they really just give in to him and anybody who is english that's listening to me just butcher that accent i apologize please don't come after me 
But something that we see instantly here is the stark contrast between the way the Dursleys talk to Dudley versus Harry. Everything towards Harry so far is a demand, and it is intimidating. And when they talk to Dudley, it is soft and soothing and spoiling, and they are, again, doing exactly what Dumbledore says to them, which is spoiling him ab- abusively. They appease Dudley at every turn. They He is spoiled, he is bratish, and his behavior is then also encouraged when he's done having his tantrum here. They talk about him getting two more presents when they go out, so he'll then have 39. And then you see Uncle Vernon chuckle, and he says, Little Tyke wants his money's worth. And so you see them actually encouraging his tantrums and his behavior and the way that he acts. The telephone then rings, and Petunia says that they have bad news, that Mrs. Fig has broken her leg, and this is when we first learn about Mrs. Fig, and she obviously becomes very crucial a few books later, and they're trying to figure out what to do with Harry now because typically on Dudley's birthday, they take him out to go somewhere. So as they're trying to figure out what to do with Harry, one of the suggestions that Vernon suggests is to to phone Aunt Marge, and this is also when we first hear about her, and she, she comes up two books later, and you get this reaction from petunia saying that no don't be silly she hates the boy and so we again get to see the way that they talk about harry and they treat harry it says that the dursleys often spoke about harry like this as though he wasn't there or rather as though he was something very nasty that couldn't understand them like a slug so it boils down to that harry's got to come with them and then dudley starts throwing a fake temper tantrum He wasn't really crying, but it says he starts crying loudly. He wasn't really crying. It had been years since he had really cried, but he knew that if he screwed up his face and wailed, his mother would give him anything that he wanted. And then his mom comes over, starts hugging him, says, Dinky Diddy Dums, don't cry. And this is one of the first baby names that we get. And it's really funny because I also think about back to the early rough draft of how this book could have started and his name could have been Didsbury and it's I don't know I just like the names that they they call him Diddy Diddicums and it's just I don't know it's funny to me it's one of the things that I like then the doorbell rings and Dudley's best friend Pierce Polkis comes in and he is not somebody that we see in the movies but he comes in he's described looking like a rat and before they all get in the car to go to the zoo We get the threat from Vernon saying no funny business, nothing like that happening. And we we still see that they are nervous about things happening around Harry or by Harry. Then it says the problem was strange things happened around Harry with his haircuts. He would get his haircut and it would grow back magically. He had a sweater that was an old one of Dudley's that was terrible looking and it kept shrinking as Petunia tried to put it on Harry. And then... I don't know if this would really be like jumping or if it was just apparition somehow, but it said Harry's being chased by Dudley's gang. And as surprising as it was, he found himself on top of the roof sitting on the chimney, not knowing how he had got there. And I think that's interesting because we start to get to see the first little bits of magic from Harry himself. Even though it was all uncontrolled, it wasn't anything that he was purposely doing. I think it's kind of just like this survival instinct that happens that kind of just takes over for him and while they're on their way to the zoo vernon is complaining about 
people on motorbikes, and Harry says that he had a dream about a flying motorbike. Vernon hears it, almost crashes the car, screaming, motorbikes don't fly. And this is how determined the Dursleys were about Harry not knowing anything. They didn't want to have any kind of imagination. They didn't want to have anything make-believe. They they wanted to keep anything supernatural as quiet as possible, as it says here. But he wished he hadn't said anything. If there was one thing the Dursleys hated even more than his asking questions, it was his talking about anything acting in a way it shouldn't. No matter if it was in a dream or even in a cartoon, they seemed to think he might get dangerous ideas. And so they were determined to, to keep anything unordinary away from Harry. And I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Then they get to the zoo. The Dursleys buy Dudley and Piers some chocolate ice cream. And before they have a chance to get Harry away, the lady offered Harry something. And so they bought him a small lemon iced lolly. He says it wasn't bad. He's looking at it. And he watched this gorilla scratching his head. And he looked remarkably like Dudley. And there's a really cool picture here of like a gorilla holding a carrot facing a picture of Dudley holding his ice cream. And they, they do look kind of alike. But it said, and this is what's sad. He had the best morning he had in a long time. He was careful to walk away apart from the Dursleys so that Dudley and Piers wouldn't get bored with the animals and come, like, bully him. But to think that after just how this morning has begun, he's already been basically bullied by Vernon and Dudley and talked about by them as if he wasn't there, just really just demeaning him and putting him down. And he gets a very cheap lolly while he's at the zoo grudgingly with the Dursleys. And it says it's one of the best mornings he's had in a long time. Then they make their way over to the reptile house where Dudley and Piers find the largest snake in the building. Standing in front of the enclosure, Dudley basically commands his dad to make the snake move. To which Vernon then raps on the glass. Nothing happens. Dudley gets bored and moves away. Harry moves in front of the the tank, and this is a very beautiful thing that we get to see from Harry right here in the beginning, and that's sympathy. And this is what it said. Harry moved in front of the tank and looked intently at the snake. He wouldn't have been surprised if it had died of boredom itself. No company except stupid people drumming their fingers on the glass, trying to disturb it all day long. It was worse than having a cupboard as a bedroom where the only visitor was Aunt Petunia hammering on the door to wake you up. At least he got to visit the rest of the house. And so I think this is a beautiful thing to see. The way that Harry is treated, the way that he is just bullied by his entire family, and yet he's kind enough still to have sympathy on this snake who probably isn't treated like that, other than just laying there and staring in at it all day long. It honestly isn't really that bad of an existence, but Harry has pity on it. And I think that's a really cool thing to see about his character just immediately. But something else that's very interesting I want to point out that happens here. But first, I'm going to take you to the Half-Blood Prince. Dumbledore in the pensive with Harry as they visit the orphanage for Tom Riddle. Before Dumbledore turns to leave, Tom says something. He says, I can speak to snakes. I found out when we had been to the country for trips. They find me, they whisper to me. I find it very interesting that Tom says this one part. They find me, they whisper to me. 
as if the snakes took the initiative, as if they could know or sense that someone was able to talk to them. Now, when we look back here in our chapter for tonight, Harry is looking at the snake enclosure. His face is pushed up against the glass, and it says, The snake suddenly opened its beady eyes. Slowly, very slowly, it raised its head until its eyes were on a level with Harry's. It winked. Harry stared. Then he looked quickly around to see if anyone was watching. They weren't. He looked back at the snake and winked, too. The snake jerked its head towards Uncle Vernon and Dudley, then raised its eyes to the ceiling. And so, the snake looks up at Harry, it winks, Harry winks back. Then they start talking. The snake initiated the interaction, like it somehow knew Harry could talk to it. Now, I'm not saying that this is, like, super important, but it is really cool to see the similarities in books that were written so far apart from each other. And we also get to see a beginning of some more similarities that aren't really ever talked about again, but it was both Harry and Voldemort who were out on trips as kids when they learned that they could talk to snakes. And the snakes most likely initiated both times. Piers sees what's going on. He shouts for Dudley, tells him to come look at what the snake is doing. Dudley hurries over, he punches Harry in the ribs, and Harry falls. Piers and Dudley are leaning against the glass. It disappears, and the two boys jump back. The snake uncoils itself and makes its way past Harry. Harry swears that he hears it say, Brazil, here I come. Thanks, amigo. We then move forward to the zoo director, himself making Aunt Petunia a cup of strong tea as he's apologizing over and over again. They're trying to figure out how this glass could just disappear. Then on the way home, Piers says, Harry, you were talking to this snake, weren't you? To which Uncle Vernon then loses his mind once Piers is out of the house, and it is safe for him to lose his mind on Harry. He's locked in his cupboard. Now, that scene in the movies is just Dudley, and when Dudley knocks Harry over, he's leaning against the glass. Harry looks up at the glass. It vanishes. Dudley falls into the enclosure. The snake comes out, says thanks, leaves, and Dudley is then stuck in the enclosure as the glass had reappeared. And so the second chapter ends with Harry locked in his cupboard, and he is thinking to himself about how miserable his time with the Dursleys has been the past ten years. Sometimes when he strained his memory, he had visions of a blinding green light and a burning pain on his forehead, which he thought was part of the lie of the car crash. He can't remember his parents, and his aunt and uncle forbid him to talk about them. He also thought that strangers sometimes recognized him, a man bowing to him while at a store, and a man shaking his hand while he was in the street, and then when Harry tried to get a closer look, they vanished. And then at school, he was alone because of Dudley's gang. And so that's the end of the second chapter. And Again, I want to thank you guys for listening. As we go through this chapter by chapter, I'm going to do my best to talk about all of these interesting points. I want to compare them to the movies, talk about the differences. I want to see what you guys like. If there are things that you like about the books more than the movie or vice versa, please email me, commonroomtalk at gmail.com. I want to hear what you guys think. It, it is really exciting to me to, to hear what you guys like, dislike, any of it just please reach out to me let me know and if you guys are enjoying this podcast please like it subscribe to it give me a rating 
and, and please, please share it with people. Anybody that is even just remotely a fan of Harry Potter, I would love to get this out there so people can hear it and, and we can talk about these things more. And again, thank you so much for your support. Again, this is Common Room Talk. Have a wonderful day.